From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. It's Friday. That, of course, means we're getting caught up on the North Carolina news happenings. The International News Roundup is ahead at 11. The domestic hour on 1A arrives at noon. Embodied will hit your ear at 1 and then Science Friday at 2, rolling us into the usual programming schedule. First up, it is the Old North State and some of what transpired this week. Well, amid the war in the Middle East, Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is in Israel right now. He says he's trying to show unity with the people of Israel. Now, this comes despite a history of anti-Semitic comments he's made. Carrying signs that said, Free Palestine and End USA Aid to Israel. Community members took turns standing on a concrete block with a megaphone. Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz said today he is weighing the chance to go to Michigan State University. Durham County District Attorney Satana D. Berry is running for North Carolina Attorney General. 14 times in 15 years, the Tar Heels to the national semifinals. Cooper, put, put the uh, sound in between the C and the P. We're hooked on phonics today, all right? language arts to the field hockey pitch uh, and also to the Middle East. Uh, we're going to try to touch on a number of things this hour on our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. And here to help us review the week are Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief of the News and Observer, Lucille Sherman, journalist with Axios Raleigh, and Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief here at WNC. Good morning and welcome to all of you. Hey, Good Jeff. Morning. Kevin Guskowitz, Chancellor at UNC Chapel Hill, might have had just enough. He acknowledged this week that he is considering weighing the top job at Michigan State University. The Daily Tar Heel reports he is the lone finalist. Guskowitz is not quite four years into the helm at Chapel Hill. Uh, just to get us started, Colin, where does this search stand? So right now, uh, he's, I guess, weighing the offers. Uh, the report came out this week from Michigan State that uh, the other candidate that that university was looking at is no longer in the running for that position. So it sounded to him as the sole finalist. So now the big question is, when do they make him an offer and when does he make a decision on whatever offer he may receive from them? Uh, so we, we don't really have a timeline yet for when we'll know. Uh, is he staying? Is he going? Don, not going to throw too much shade at Michigan State University here, a fine school, but I'm, I'm told Carolina is a public ivy. Uh, might be obvious to some, but what variables are at play that could be helping to accelerate the, the departure here of Chancellor Guskowitz? Uh, well, this is my view as like someone who covers politics, but money, I guess, because there's always money in everything. It could be, obviously, if you're at this level, you make a lot of money, so maybe not as much. Maybe where he lives, what his workplace uh vibe is. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of politics and um, and hire it here, but that's that's everywhere, too. So is he tired of it and wants to go, wants to try somewhere new? Where is he going to retire eventually several years from now? Um, kind of the things that come into play with anybody and, and where they want to live and where they want to work. I'm thinking of the names Carol Folt and Bill Roper mm. and changes at the top of both the UNC uh, campus, UNC Chapel Hill also. Uh, there have been changes within the Board of Governors. Lucille, uh, I guess, unpack a little bit for us uh, just how political or how m much more political UNC has become in, in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Goskowitz has sort of had a rough go of it uh, in the last few years. Yeah. And he has sort of faced what it feels like have been purely political issues in a lot of ways. He faced... Um, sort of the fall of Silent Sam. 
He's faced COVID and the legislature's weighing in on how he handled COVID on campus. Um, He's sort of just had the legislature, it feels like, hovering over him. And in recent years, I think, you know, since I've been here in 2020, we've watched sort of the legislature consistently weigh in on or legislate things related to higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I I imagine that it's been really difficult for <laughs> uh, the chancellor to have an outside sort of body trying to govern his own work. It's tough to be a boss when you're your bosses have very different priorities from everybody under you. And in Guskowitz's case, everyone under you who has been your colleagues for, I think, several decades, mm-hmm. he was somebody who worked his way up through the ranks of administration at UNC, has been at the university since the 90s. It would be interesting to see what the, the different dynamic is with Michigan State. I looked up how their board of trustees is appointed, and they're actually elected directly by voters, which is a fascinating dynamic that I don't know a whole lot about. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's... that's. Yeah, let me offer a third wow. That would be <laughs> fascinating to see how that would play out that here. That would be a very different dynamic, Can I you think. imagine? Yeah. And the context from afar, which I'm not going to pretend to know too much about, but of course, Michigan State has been in national news for years because of the Dr. Larry Nassar scandal and, and the sexual abuse that, that was uh, perpetrated by by him. And there's all kinds of drama that has played out within the Michigan State uh, University system. So it's not as though he's leaving for some uh, unicorn and rainbows like field. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, that's what I think makes it most interesting to me is that it's not as if, yeah, he's leaving for a um, what seems like a smoother uh, tenure. And I think that's what makes it significant. Like he he must really not like UNC to be considering sort of leaving the school for Michigan State. Presumably much more to come on this story in the days and weeks ahead. Lucille Sherman, Don Vaughn, and Colin Campbell here on our North Carolina Friday News Roundup as we're getting underway. We're going to shift to Medicaid expansion. Less than two weeks now from uh, expansion finally being implemented here in North Carolina. Most other states, as a reminder, have already expanded the parameters for the hybrid federal state health care program. This for people living in lower socioeconomic strata and or with disabilities. Uh, this comes after a decade-long fight in North Carolina. Uh, an estimated 500,000 people will uh, benefit or now uh, be on the rolls with this new expanded health care coverage. Uh, the Biden administration sought to entice holdout states with uh, a signing bonus and not a small signing bonus. Colin, you were uh, among those who reported on this this week. Just how much money, please remind us, is 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 coming to, is, is here in North Carolina uh, because of this signing bonus for expanding Medicaid. And where is some of this money going to go? Yeah, so it's $1.6 billion over two years. It's hard to kind of make sense of that money. But just to put it in context, the state's overall budget that has been passed for this year is about $30 billion. So this is a pretty big chunk of change for the state of North Carolina. And there was this push and pull over the last few months between the House and the Senate and the governor's administration. The House and the governor's administration thought that all of this money should go towards mental health. Certainly everyone agrees that uh, North Carolina needs to do more to improve its mental health system. Uh, the Senate came up with a different sort of wide-ranging array of health care related proposals, and they got together. Uh, I think it was largely negotiated between the two top uh, health care chairmen, uh, Representative Donnie Lambeth and Senator Ralph Heiss, who uh, basically went through the list, went through the spreadsheet of how to spend $1.6 billion and came up with the final plan. So it's kind of a mix between what the House and the Senate wanted. A good chunk of it still is going towards mental health, but not all of it. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of stuff in there for community colleges and college programs that train workforce for healthcare professionals. Obviously, there's a shortage of that, uh, and they want to get more people in the pipeline to be trained for these type of careers, particularly with more people Mm -hmm. accessing healthcare insurance uh, under the uh, Medicaid expansion 
And then there's a few really random things in there um, that popped up at the last minute. We're not in the House and Senate budget. Uh, they basically just stuck some unrelated to healthcare earmarks in there that I guess couldn't find another place in the budget. So we're using part of that to fund improved bathrooms at the Rockingham Speedway. Uh, we're building a new library in Swain County, and we are building a new auditorium at a private college in Gaston County. All very healthcare related, as you can imagine. Yeah, I, I sense your snark. Uh, clearly not healthcare related. Give me the rationale for these earmarks, if you're uh, aware of either of you. Yeah, or Rockingham. Who do we know who's from Rockingham? Well, it's the Senate city of Rockingham, Silver. but oh, okay. still, you know, these, these are all Republican China. districts right. that are getting earmarks for a wide variety of local projects ah. that people are interested in. I mean, that's a, that's the North Carolina state budget process. Is, yeah. is there extra money? Favors. What did you want in your district, assuming you have the cloud? Yeah, I mean, the again, like, it unfortunately, all goes back to money and power, and those that have more power and influence control the money and where it goes. And I don't remember, was it maybe your call, uh, your story, Colin, or someone else where I'd seen a Secretary Kinsley quoted saying that, like, you know, basically as long as it got done, you know, here are all, like, the great things that they did. Yeah, yeah. He told me that, um, you know, if, if they spent the entire $1.6 billion on bathrooms and it got Medicaid expanded, he would have been happy with that. So that's, uh, Don, who you're referencing there, uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Cody Kinsley. And I read that quote, and I thought it was interesting, and I thought some of when I read the quote about, all right, it, it's okay. Some of these earmarks might be random, but we're, we're it, it seemed to be like a keeping the peace quote to me, uh, where he, he as, as you just said, they could have spent this money on a number of things, but the Cooper administration would have been happy, is happy with Medicaid expansion yeah. finally rolling forward. Yeah, I think Kinsley, and I talked to him, I don't know, a month or two ago about everything in the budget, and he was just so happy that there's all this all this good stuff, all yeah. this mental health stuff, everything else that there's, you know, sometimes it's it's not going to be perfect. And I mean, that's just kind of how politics is. But his main goal was Medicaid expansion. And that's what he got. We've all been covering the legislature for a while. I cannot think of one perfect piece of policy, not to be too snarky. It's a Friday simple morning. bill. It's uh, a simple <laughs> bill. Just to play devil's advocate, sure. I'd also argue that bathrooms are a public health, maybe <laughs> related to public health. Sure. It's probably a stretch, but I bet we could somehow categorize yeah, each one of those we're, things. Were the, um, you know, old bathrooms filthy and breeding all kinds of bacteria? Possibly. Yeah. And yeah, I think that Cody Kensley was sort of happy to get this done, period. It was so close to falling apart so many times, I think. Yeah. At some point, you're just glad to get it over the finish line, no matter what's in it. We've got much more to discuss here on the North Carolina News Roundup here on Due South. want to uh, just offer a couple of uh, programming notes. Earlier this week, we did have a political conversation with State Senate Leader Phil Berger, Republican of Rockingham County, not Rockingham, the city. That's in a different location south of Guilford County. We'll save the geography for another time. Uh, we also had a great conversation this week on Due South. Uh, my colleague Leonita Inge spoke with Brittany Hunt, a member of the Lumbee Tribe, Quite simply, a fascinating person and conversation. Would encourage you to uh, check both of those episodes, conversations out, as well as other offerings from uh, Do South at DoSouthRadio.org. We've got Lucille Sherman, journalist from Axios Raleigh, Don Vaughn, who's the Capitol Bureau Chief at the News and Observer, as well as our own Capitol Bureau Chief, Colin Campbell, here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup on WUNC. We'll return in just a moment. Welcome back to Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Friday News Roundup, North Carolina style. And uh, we're going to turn our attention now to 
what is playing out in the Middle East, the war between Israel and Hamas, and the implications that are being felt and heard here at home. We pray in the words of the 130th Psalm, Shir Hama'alot Mima'akim Karaticha Adonai. Out of the depths have we called you, O Lord. O Lord, hear our voices. Be attentive to our. All right, we're going to spend the next few minutes talking about the war in the Middle East and how the conflict and this humanitarian crisis are playing out here. Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson visited the region this week. There were pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Asheville. At a Raleigh City Council meeting, nearly 100 people signed up to speak and many called for a ceasefire, as you heard there a moment ago. Municipal officials in Carborough approved a symbolic ceasefire resolution. And Democratic Congresswoman Kathy Manning, who you also just heard a moment ago, she's from Guilford County, led a prayer at a pro-Israel rally in Washington, D.C. These are merely a few of the events that took place across the state this week. And I want to simply acknowledge that this is an incredibly fraught, complicated and devastating war. The anguish and fear that so many people are grappling with is personally to me in a way kind of fundamentally incomprehensible. So we're going to do our best to show empathy, stick to the facts and context and focus specifically on the impacts of the war that are transpiring here. In the weeks ahead, we will turn to scholars and other voices to seek additional understanding of this awful situation. All right, Don, Lieutenant Governor went to Israel this week. Who did he go with, and why did he make the trip? He went with this uh, conservative Christian group. Uh, Now that you've put me on the spot, I forgot what it's it's called. I want to say faith and... Faith faith and freedom, something like that. Yeah, Yeah. light. uh, But anyway... Um, according to like others reporting, this was already something that's planned. And I covered religion for a long time and all variety of religious organizations will organize trips to Israel. So it's not unusual that this is happening with, um, with Lieutenant, the timing of it is, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lieutenant Governor Robinson is known for, um, making a lot of insulting comments about a variety of groups of people in different ways over the years, including, uh, Jewish people, anti-Semitic remarks on Facebook comments and posts and this sort of thing before he was uh, lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. So a or, couple, yeah. couple of weeks ago, I feel like a month ago, uh, he held a, it was when he pulled a move when uh, Governor Cooper was out of the country. The, what the Constitution says when the governor's gone, the acting governor is lieutenant governor. Usually they don't do anything. I don't think they, you know, open the gates for Robinson to come hang out at the mansion while Cooper is out of town. But he does have that power to be acting governor. And he called a press conference to talk about um, solidarity with with Israel. And it was pretty clear that this was planned as a way for him to publicly show support and to walk back the comments he'd made in the past, because all our questions were about all this stuff he said in the past. And it was, um, I think you were there, Colin. It was it, it, it was awkward. It was just very, he didn't, I think there's one other state lawmaker in order to have the room. You have to have a lawmaker reserve it. Of course, the lieutenant governor presides over the Senate, but doesn't vote unless there's a tie. Um, but this was, I guess, because he's running for governor, wanted to... Um, to talk about it and take the whatever flack that he got in this trip, I think, is another attempt. At, uh, I don't think he's suddenly, as lieutenant governor, wanting to do this. It's because he's running for governor. Yeah. Colin, you want to build on that? Or uh, let me ask this quick follow-up. 
How did it work? Don just used the word awkward, but this press conference recently, like, ha- has he mended uh, some of what has transpired in the past or n- well, he, he's sort of he said he regrets how how they were worded these uh, Facebook posts he made. He didn't necessarily come directly out and apologize saying like how he said it was ro- what he said was wrong. He's saying they've gotten sort of misinterpreted. I mean, the, the challenge with Robinson's post about a variety of different, you know, marginalized groups in the U.S. and in North Carolina is that they're kind of vague. He doesn't come straight out and say, I don't like this group of people. He, you know, in this case, he he uses terms like shekels and things that sort of have a, a connotation of potential anti-Semitism, but it's not as direct. So as journalists, it makes it really hard to describe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this press conference, he makes this proclamation, and then all the questions, of course, are specifically about posts that he's made in the past. Journalists quoting directly from the post, asking him to say, if, you know, does he still stand behind what he said on Facebook two years ago? Um, so it's it's a challenge for him because every time he brings up this issue, it brings out his political opponents who want to uh, make hay of it and make light of the fact that he's, you know, said these things in the past, and it also forces him to respond to more questions about what he said in the past. Colin Campbell from WNC, Don Vaughn from the News and Observer, Lucille Sherman from Axios Raleigh here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup on Due South. I want to offer two bits of context and then we're going to keep the conversation going. Uh, Number one, just for folks that might not know, I know everyone in this room knows, the lieutenant governor and the governor do not run on a single ticket as governors and lieutenant governors do across much of the country. Uh, And if you're new to our area or just didn't know that, that's why you're like, wait, why is there a Democratic governor and a Republican lieutenant governor? They seem to be really different from an ideological standpoint. Well, that's why. Uh, Number two, I just want to offer this Facebook post from Robinson in full. I'm, I'm pulling from a WRAL article from earlier this week that just has reposted the quote. It reads, quote, this, the, and this is from Mark Robinson, Facebook, five years ago. Quote, the center and leftist leaning Weimar Republic put heavy gun ownership restrictions on German citizens long before the Nazis took power. This foolishness about Hitler disarming millions of Jews and then marching them off to concentration camps is a bunch of hogwash. Repeating that hogwash makes the conservative argument against the current attempts by liberal Marxists to push unconstitutional gun control measures in this nation look foolish. Close quote. That is Mark Robinson on Facebook five years ago, as Don noted, uh, for whatever it is worth, before he was the lieutenant governor. Uh, Lucille? Political implications here. We are hearing a lot about this trip to uh, the the Middle East by the lieutenant governor. He is uh, the leading candidate on the Republican side for the gubernatorial nomination in 2024. What are his counterparts, his challengers uh, saying about this trip? Yeah, I think Democrats are sort of going to keep pointing to his past comments, which um, he very quickly rose as a major political figure in North Carolina. And so it's interesting to me that he sort of made all of these comments before that, because I don't necessarily know that he was ever planning on being in politics. Um, But I think the question for me is, you know, is he sort of making amends for these comments that maybe the groups that he's spoken about don't like? And I don't really think we're going to know that until we can look at demographics in the primary election and the general election. So it's going to be, you know, months um, or nearly a year before we sort of really know how successful these efforts he's made have been. There are challengers in the Republican primary for governor. There's Bill Graham, there's Dale Falwell. Uh, what are they saying about Robinson's voyage? 
Falwell's hitting this really hard and saying that this is just sort of a political stunt to distract from the statement. So what you're seeing out of Falwell's camp looks very similar to what you're seeing out of uh, of Josh Stein's camp. I will say the other backdrop to this particular issue is Josh Stein, I think, would be if he's elected our first Jewish governor uh, in history. Um, and so there's a certain oddity towards some of the I saw a press release from Robinson's campaign calling on Stein to condemn uh, what Hamas has done. And it's kind of odd for someone to uh, demand that a Jewish person condemn attacks on Jewish people. But that's just, you know, one aspect of this. this Ab- yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say this race next year. Goodness gracious. It's, yeah. Goodness gracious. One of, I believe, 11 gubernatorial races in the country in 2024. And it is I, at the risk of uh, putting in a box. But we very likely are I don't know about very likely. We are quite possibly going to have a contest between um, a black Republican. States never had a black governor before uh, and a um, and and a a Jewish Democratic nominee who is Jewish. And I I don't know if there's ever been a nominee who is Jewish before in the in the uh, gubernatorial race. I'm aware of, but not that I'm aware of. And there certainly has not ever been a, a governor in our state who who's Jewish. Um, Go ahead, Lucille. Yeah, I just think that's what makes this so fascinating and important right now for the gubernatorial races. This is all happening. And these are the two candidates. If these weren't the two candidates, I don't know if this sort of would be as front and center in conversations in North Carolina politics right now. North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. Uh, Let's shift from Robinson and uh, some of those other sounds and voices you heard a few moments ago. Uh, There was a pro-Palestinian demonstration in Asheville. There were uh, folks who attended the Raleigh City Council meeting uh, calling for a ceasefire. Uh, I'm going to just put this to the the group and any one of you can jump in and and take this. But for our listeners, unpack why is a city council meeting uh, hearing about uh, a resolution for a ceasefire in the in the Middle East? Well, people want to talk about something that they feel passionately about and they want to talk about it immediately. And local government is generally the place to do that. There's public comment time. You can go in public with your nearest government, which is local government, and talk about what you're upset about. Now, can a city council do anything? No. I mean, it's all it's all messaging, um, but it's a way for people to be heard and they, that's that's the outlet they're choosing. And the city council is just kind of like, who do you want to be as as a council? And when um, former Mayor Shul, which is, I guess, like two, three mayors ago now, I remember. Former Durham mayor. Sorry. Right. Go ahead, sorry. Steve Durham mayor Steve Shul. When he was elected, he talked about wanting Durham to be a progressive beacon in the south. And it's just a city. Right. It's, I mean, part of this like much larger group. But it's it's whatever messaging and, and how you want to represent yourself. So I think that's why if something's an international issue, your um, your local council is is the place for you to talk about it. And city council members are elected officials. And I think people feel like they want the people they've elected to represent them to speak on the issues or be vocal about the issues that they care about. Mm -hmm. And those are sort of the elected officials that are closest to us. So I think people really want to make sure that these people are aware of how they're feeling and also sort of hold them, hold their feet to the fire in you know, speaking out about it as well. And it becomes a sort of a political challenge. Then you've seen a few of these uh, town boards, I think Carborough most notably, passing resolutions, uh, calling for a ceasefire or uh, expressing some other viewpoint about this. That is a incredibly politically touchy thing to do. Uh, no matter how you word a statement about this particular conflict, uh, somebody is going to take issue with it. And so if you're a uh, local official, uh, there's probably a desire from some of them to try to dodge the issue, recognizing 
that, you know, Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu don't really care what the mayor of Carborough thinks about this mm-hmm. um, or the mayor of Raleigh. Uh, and then the question is, do you want to take that political heat from folks who don't have the same viewpoint as you about the conflict? Colin, Lucille and Don are here on Due South. Lily, Lily Knapp uh, from Blue Ridge Public Radio is along in a bit. We're going to get an update on wildfires in western North Carolina. Well, uh, I guess one more question on this and, and we'll move on to another topic, which is uh, as reporters, as journalists who are trying to synthesize this and and keep tabs on what is happening. What are you listening for, watching for, expecting to happen as it pertains to this conflict and implications here in North Carolina in the next week, month? Are there there things that are uh, on, on the horizon for you? And maybe not. Might be a throwaway question. That's okay, too. I think it's been difficult for Democrats, um, you know, at the state level and nationally to sort of figure out how to message on this topic. Um, And I'm really interested in sort of watching how they do that, especially with the 2024 elections around the corner. I think it's sort of complicated and everybody has a different way of weighing in on it. And there's constantly somebody calling them out for saying something, just like Colin said. But Democrats in particular seem to be having a difficult time. Um, And I'm really interested to see sort of how they continue to talk about that and go forward and try and unite as a party on that. Yeah, there's been some polling that shows that more Democrats are um, uh, taking issue with the way that Israel has handled the response, even just compared to a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and how that affects the uh, reaction, particularly from North Carolina's Democratic congressional delegation. We've got a lot of moderates in Congress like Wiley Nickel, Kathy Manning, Don Davis, who have been very supportive of Israel in the past and are starting to get more and more flack from uh portions of their party who feel like maybe that's not the right approach. And I think we may see that build more. Um, There's been some pro-Israel political action committees that have been active in Democratic primaries last year here. Representative Uh, Fushi. Yeah. I mean, she's like Durham and Yeah, I think Don Davis got some uh, support from these groups as well. Those were groups that clearly were trying to get avoid a uh, Democratic nominee who is more pro-Palestinian. And so that that sort of you know political backdrop is also there as these members of Congress try to chart the appropriate political course for themselves. I think it could play out in Fushi's primary because she's a freshman and how, how that'll turn because some of the protesters in Durham when they closed down the freeway, which we're recording this just off the freeway, mm-hmm. right? They had like wanted to have a response from her. So we could, you know, obviously this is an issue that's a, n- not going away. We'll see how much it's a factor in a couple months. Unfortunately, to that point, uh, we will have uh, other opportunities to discuss uh, the happenings, the implications here on the Friday News Roundup. One quick note from earlier of uh, the organization that Robinson uh, traveled to Israel with uh, is the North Carolina Faith and Freedom Coalition. In case that wasn't properly said, my mind is moving. In There's a, a lot of, of groups that have say. names sounding like that. So good to be mm-hmm. clear about it. Just in, in case there was any question. Um, I want to chat briefly about a couple of 2024 election notes. Uh, Satana DeBerry, the Durham District Attorney, announced late last week uh, after we did this program that she will jump into the Democratic primary for attorney general. She will challenge Jeff Jackson. Uh, This wasn't expected, uh, at least from folks I've talked to. Uh, She is uh, a a pretty well-respected district attorney and provides a little bit of a a challenge in the Democratic primary. But but Don, take this and run with it. What do you uh, what do you make of DeBerry's uh, announcement? 
I think this shows that there are a lot of Democrats that are not happy with kind of what's happened recently, where the party decides even before, long before filing, who the nominee is going to be. And there's no not a lot of candidates to choose from in the primary. I think we've seen that with um, recently retired state Supreme Court Justice Mike Morgan entering the race against Attorney General Josh Stein because people it was like, oh, Stein is that, you know, is the candidate for Democrats and Morgan, maybe others are like, wait, no. You can give people choices in a primary. And I think that's the same thing with Jeff Jackson and and D.A.D. Barry. And maybe it's something she always wanted to do and didn't feel like stepping aside because a higher profile name got into the primary. Yeah, I think it I think it will make for a much more interesting primary. We haven't really seen really. It's been pretty pretty quiet on the Democratic front Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in the AG's race. So I think it will be interesting to see this race play out. And yeah, I mean, I think in terms of democracy in general, I think we want primary challengers. We want more people in the race. And so this sort of presents that. Um, And it'll be interesting because Jeff Jackson is um, very popular with voters and sort of a different kind of candidate in how he messages with general public. So um, it will be an interesting primary. And it is interesting because he has something of a national following with his tens of thousands of uh, Twitter followers and TikTok followers. To Don's point really quickly, it's striking to me sometimes where it's like, oh, yeah, the presumptive nominee over here, over there. And it's like we haven't even had candidate filing yet. Like the election's not not there's even been, underway. And, we already know really the nominees. There's polls in this because we didn't know. I mean, we didn't know uh, DeBerry was going to run until about a week ago. Um, there was really no inkling of that. So, yeah, it's. I, I feel like sometimes we, we want to jump to conclusions in, in the media based on sort of conventional wisdom. And, and sometimes I feel like we are doing a disservice to, to voters to do that because most of these people uh, who will be voting may not know who any of these candidates right. are. I mean, Jeff Jackson has a pretty high profile, but a lot of them, like if you do the polling on, you know, p- hold up a picture of this particular politician, whether it's, you know, Tim Moore or somebody else. Right. People won't have any they've idea got to, They've got to put the groundwork in, you know, and Jackson's national following, that's North Carolina votes for him, not the rest of the country, you know. So what's his case to, to North Carolina voters and the same for D. Yeah. Barry? And I think the big question here is uh, – to what extent is there diversity on the Democratic ticket overall? Um, if you were to look at the, you know, people who have been described as potential front runners, you could have uh, Josh Stein for governor, uh, Rachel Hunt for lieutenant governor, and Jeff Jackson for attorney general. Those are all white people. To me, that's one of the biggest um, factors in her entry into the race is sort of adding this layer of diversity. Same with Mike Morgan um, entering the governor's race. Uh, we're seeing a lot of white people described as front runners, um, and this sort of shifts that a little bit. And then also, I think it's worth noting that the two sort of alleged front runners in the attorney general's race are both members of Congress. So we have Republican Congressman Dan Bishop. We have Democratic con- Congressman Jeff Jackson. Mm-hmm. And D. Barry presents a very different kind of candidate sort of into that fold. And it would be a woman. There's not even a woman running for governor. We've only had one woman governor in North Carolina. Right. And I, I think we've only ever had one woman run for governor from a major party uh, at the risk of putting my foot in my mouth. Of course, it was Bev Perdue, lieutenant governor, who became governor uh, in 2009. Uh Really quickly here, sports gambling has been pushed back, uh, or we think it's it's looking like it's going to be pushed back just in 30 seconds or less. How come? So originally they were hoping for uh, January. I think they have multiple months in which they can get it up and running. This is the North Carolina Lottery Commission that has to come up with all the regulations and uh, application and permitting process for the sports gambling operators. So a lot for them to contend with, and it's just taking them longer than they would expect. So if you're looking to place a bet, uh, stay on hold or do it illegally, I guess. 
All right, buddies. <laughs> don't email me. Don't blame me. Friends of my friends, my friends, don't get mad because sports gambling will not be ready uh, for the NFL playoffs, or at least it doesn't appear that way. We're going to roll on with our North Carolina Friday News Roundup here in uh, just a moment on WUNC. We've got uh, Don Vaughn from the News and Observer, Lucille Sherman from Axios Raleigh, and Colin Campbell from WUNC. On the other side, we'll welcome in Lily Knepp from Blue Ridge Public Media uh, as she gets us caught up to date on the wildfire situation in Western North Carolina. And yes, we will discuss that 75th governor's name. It's Roy Cooper or Copper. We're back in a minute. This is Due South on WUNC. Welcome back. It's the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on listener-supported North Carolina Public Radio. It's Due South. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Quick reminder, DueSouthRadio.org has all the segments, conversations, interviews, and bits and pieces from our third week uh, of programming here. Encourage you to check those out uh, as you head into the weekend if you're looking for uh, a travel companion or some podcast material as you get going to Thanksgiving. We're going to bring in uh, Lily Knepp now from uh, Blue Ridge Public Radio, and we're going to chat about uh, a health issue playing out in the mountains as well as uh, wildfires. Now, fire crews have been able to contain some of the fires out near the Asheville area. Firefighters say an afternoon fire in West Asheville started with a fast-moving brush fire. Crews facilitated several evacuations across the city amid those containment efforts. That's a news clip from WFMY Greensboro earlier this week. Lily Gannett, welcome to Two South Friday News Roundup. How are you? Thanks, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for being here. You are, uh, of course, on the line from Western North Carolina, uh, where you live and work. Please set the scene for us. What's the scope of the wildfires in Western North Carolina right now? So this definitely feels like the worst situation as far as drought and fires that we've been in since 2016. Um, So over 5,000 acres have burned. And basically, we've just been trying to keep up with uh, all of these wildfires popping up. Um, from a variety of different sources. I think you would be really surprised to hear, um, you know, yesterday, one of the most recent fires that uh, came up last night uh, happened in Haywood County after a tractor trailer crashed on the mm. road. So sparks flew up and 150 acres are on fire. So it's, uh, it's definitely a bad situation. Speak to the drought, speak to the dryness. Uh, is, is it, it's customary, it can be customary this time of year. Is it worse than usual? Yes, it is cyclical, but um, just yesterday, the State Drought Advisory Council um, put out a new update that nine of the westernmost counties are experiencing extreme drought for the first time since 2017. Now, on the drought scale, that's a four out of five. So there is still another level above that, but is extremely dry. And that's what make is making it possible for for sparks from, you know, uh, people burning, even though there is a burn ban. Um, the biggest fire here in Western North Carolina actually started with a lightning strike. Um, so in Cherokee County, over 5,000 acres have been burning since October 23rd. And just because of the terrain, it's been really difficult for them to put out. Um, I was thinking about a campfire and the way that you want to make a containment line around the campfire. And that's what they've been trying to do with this fire in Cherokee County. But um, just because it's so steep, they can't bring in bulldozers. So they've been out there with, 
you know, shovels and picks, putting in hand lines. And so um, that's really a big part of this issue right now. A burning ban, of course, is in effect for much of Western North Carolina. And as you you note here, uh, so much of the land we're talking about is remote. It is not inhabited. But can you give us a sense of the damage to to homes or businesses or other property? And, And has there been any loss of life that we're aware of? There's been no loss of life yet. Um, there have been very few structures that have burned at this point. You know, in that uh, Cherokee County fire, 5,000 acres have burned, but so far, no structures. Um, there have been, you know, these other fires popping up in Henderson County that did burn a few homes. Um, so it's definitely a, kind of a dangerous time and something that uh, everyone is basically just praying for rain, but it sounds like it might not be coming anytime soon. I guess I think just briefly, uh, have have uh, are, are people being brought in? Have folks come in from other states? Uh, are there federal agencies that are helping to fight this at this point? And do you? I mean, you mentioned rain, so I guess two part question: Who's helping to fight the fire at this point? And do we have a, a an optimistic sense or timeline of when uh, these folks believe it will be contained or hope to have it contained by? So, you know, the, the for uh, much of this land in uh, much of the land in Western North Carolina is a part of the U.S. Forest Service. And so North Carolina Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service and local um, EM, EMS departments, uh, emergency management services are all kind of working together on this. Um, the in that drought advisory that went out last night, um, the chairman said that you know they had there there is hope that there is going to be a wet winter but that this might not happen until early december and so we got a little bit of rain last weekend and that kind of is what helped cherokee county contain their fire a little bit so mm-hmm. it had been zero percent contained for weeks and now it's at about 80 percent contained um so uh, just just kind of hoping hoping that this continue that um that it get, we get some rain Lily Knapp of Blue Ridge Public Radio here on Due South on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup. Just a little bit of math for everybody, not to make your head spin too much, but 5,000 acres is almost eight square miles. Sometimes we hear these acre, at least I hear this acreage, and I'm like, how big is that? Um, Just so you know, it's about eight square miles. Uh, Lily, I want to touch on one other topic with you, which is uh, something of a spat that's playing out right now between the, the hospital system that owns the hospital in Asheville, HCA, which owns what I think colloquially is still known as Mission Hospital. Uh, and there's an issue going on between the Democratic Attorney General Josh Stein and the hospital uh, system's attorneys. The Democratic Attorney General wants some documents. Uh, he doesn't have them yet. Tell us what Josh Stein is looking for and why the, the, the hospital ownership has balked thus far. So HCA is the current owner of Mission Health System, which actually covers 18 far western counties and the Kuala Boundary. So they bought that healthcare system. HCA is a for-profit system out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. They bought that in 2019. And so actually, Attorney General Josh Stein was really uh, involved and actually oversaw the asset purchase agreement when HCA took over Mission Health. And so there were a lot of promises within that asset purchase agreement around continuing services, um, following through, for example, in Franklin, they built a new hospital that Mission had already been kind of promised to build. And so HCA followed through and now Franklin has a new hospital. And so Stein has really been involved since that purchase in 2019 um, 
as they're making sure that HCA is following through on these promises that are outlined in this asset purchase agreement. And so most recently in June, Stein actually sent a letter to HCA saying, um, I think you only have one oncology doctor right now. So Hmm. um, one of the biggest promises in the asset purchase agreement is that they're not allowed to cut any services. And so there have been a lot of changes to services and there's been a lot of back and forth between the DOJ and HCA about changing services and whether or not this is a violation of the asset purchase agreement. And so at the end of October, Stein actually Uh, sent a letter to the private foundation that was created by this sale to say, hey, you have 40 days to work with HCA to fix this. Mm -hmm. um, Because it's it's not not good to have one oncology doctor for 18 counties. So um, and so they're they're really kind of working through this. And um, Asheville Citizen Times and Asheville Watchdog have been doing really great reporting around HCN mission. Um, But this has definitely been on an ongoing discussion with the DOJ and HCA since, you know, long before long before Stein, you know, became the potential candidate for governor. Lily Knapp here uh, on Due South. Uh, getting us caught up on some of the happenings in Western North Carolina. I want to welcome back in Lucille and Don and Colin. Uh, Lily, please stay with us. Uh, And we're going to uh, tick through some other items here in the final few minutes of our North Carolina Friday News Roundup. We're going to try something new uh, on this edition of the Roundup, and we're going to go of the week. I'm going to offer a number, a question, uh, just little themes to uh, kind of pick at your brains a little bit. Our question of the week is have you ever heard of Roy Cupper before? I don't want to alarm anyone, but most of us have been mispronouncing the governor of North Carolina's name his entire time in office. Cooper. Put, put the uh sound in between the C and the P. We're hooked on phonics today, all right? That's how you actually say his name. It's an Eastern North Carolina pronunciation. He's from Nash County, and throughout his youth, that's how people said it. True story. This is how people said it. Uh, okay, that's Travis Fain from WRAL, a fun, lighter report uh, that came this week on the television. Uh, enjoyed it. Smiled at it. I will share that years ago, I sat down with Carter Wren, who's an old-school Republican political strategist. He used to work for Jesse Helms. And and Carter Wren, just, I mean, he, he's got an old-school draw. And you go in, you talk to Carter. Carter's smoking a cigar, and Carter's in a in the kind of a black and red jumpsuit. And I asked him what he thought about Roy Cooper. And he's like, well, Cooper's Cooper, 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 Cooper. And I was like, what is, like, what? And that was the first time I heard Cooper uh, Travis acknowledged in his report, he, he was unfamiliar with this kind of like Eastern North Carolina drawl brogue. Talk to me about, about Cooper. You've been covering the governor a long time, Don. So I don't think I've ever heard Cooper or Cupper. I can't say it East. Cooper. I'm not from East. Me either. Cupper. Um, I don't think he's ever introduced himself that way. No, so, certainly you not. Know, I, sure. I mean, he calls himself Governor Roy Cooper at some point. I assume he introduces himself if they don't already know who he is. Um, so, no, I've never heard that. But if somebody said it, I would recognize they're talking about the same person. I mean, there's like all range of accents and dialects in the state. I'm personally questioning everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, had a hard time with that uh, newscast. I, I, it was a lesson learned for me. I'm I'm not from North Carolina. I'm from Oklahoma. Uh, so our accents are very different. Um, I think I'll be having to look in the mirror and <laughs> practice this for a while. Yeah, do, you think, do you think it's going to catch on? Uh, that's the challenge. Because I, I, I thought about it from a radio perspective. You know, we we are very careful about how we pronounce people's names on the radio. 
Um, and this is one where it's, I, I think it's a tough call because it's, it sounds good to say it that way if you are speaking in a Nash County accent. If you were sounding like me or you were sounding like some of my colleagues who uh, hail from other parts of the country, it's going to sound weird if you say that and then the rest of the sentence is in your dialect of wherever you're originally right. from. So I, I mean, I, I want to respect how people would like their names to be pronounced, but yeah, it's a, it's going to take a minute for me, I think. <laughs> I mean, he had his chance. He could have been telling us all this time and when he was AG and when he was in the Senate and when he was in the House. So, you know, Cooper made himself Cooper. And, and apparently there is some debate among this locally. I, I saw a tweet from a, a friend of mine who was from the Rocky Mount area saying that there's a community within Nash County, not far from where Roy Cooper grew mm-hmm. up, called Cooper's. That's the name of the area. And there's an elementary school and a fire department mm. there. And people pronounce those various entities in that community differently, um, depending on who they are. And they, they may all be from that area. I, I will point out that Roy Cooper has been in public life for 35 yeah. years. So if he wanted to make this change, he should have done so a long time ago. Lily, please jump in here. Yeah, no, we have the same conversation here in Western North Carolina. You know, there's so many very specifically pronounced places. And even within, you know, if you go from county to county, folks are going to say things differently. And, and I think to to Don's point, and I, yeah, I wish, I, just tell us how you want to pronounce your name. I wish, I wish Governor Cooper had just told us. <laughs> I, and I think in all, in all fairness, it was a playful moment between the governor uh, and Travis from, uh, from WRL. So that's our, uh, that is our question of the week. Have you ever heard of Roy Cooper before? Let's move to our number of the week, which is 230 million U.S. dollars. Uh, the figure lands in the program today thanks to a Washington Post piece that came across my desk earlier this week. Joan Kroc, the heiress of the McDonald's fortune, left a cool $230 million to NPR 20 years ago this month, back in 2003. Uh, Like many of you, I suspect I hear her name in NPR funding credits regularly. Admittedly, I did not know this story. Uh, The massive gift, as the Post piece points out, Quote, or pulling the excerpt here, it was more than twice NPR's annual operating budget that year. All at once, an organization that had nearly gone bankrupt in the early 1980s had something it had never known, breathing room. I burst into tears, recalled Susan Stamberg, one of the original on-air hosts for NPR, which began broadcasting in 1971. Those of us who'd been there a long time had never lost the sense that we lived on the edge and might not make it through. Suddenly, we had a future. Close quote. I just thought it was an, a neat story. I wanted to drop it in there because we were uh, not a surprise to anybody uh, in a pledge drive this week. And it was like, oh, like there's a little overlay there. Uh, it was uh, another reminder of just how public radio works and operates and, and has found success. So y'all can jump in here if you want. You don't have to. But I, I wanted to kind of offer just like a note of gratitude, both to the Joan Kroc bequeathment, but also um, just the pledge drive that we yeah, had. It's fortunate to be as someone who's new to this organization to be at a place where we're, we're, we're well funded and well supported by our listeners that, you know, don't have to worry too much about, um, you know, layoffs or budget cuts or things like that because the, the support is there. And I, I think it wasn't the pledge drive that just wrapped up which rolls me into thankfulness and thanks and thanksgiving. And we are six days away from Turkey and football and high school reunions, which many people like to avoid uh, late night college basketball. All the things are next week. Uh, I'd love to hear from each of you uh, a note of appreciation, something you are uh, thankful for thinking about as we head into Thanksgiving. It can be a uh, personal professional. Uh, I don't really care, but as I told you before we got going, if you mention nothing, I will probably give you uh, a hard time. Lucille, you're up first. Oh, man. Up first. Um, My mom got into town yesterday. Nice. uh, So I'm feeling very thankful for her. Um, To express my gratitude for her, I will plug. uh, We had a coconut curry egg drop soup from the new restaurant in Carrie Sap. 
uh, it felt the combo of, you know, the comfort of my mom being there and that kind of comfort food really, I mean, sets the tone for the next week for me. Lily from uh, Blue Ridge Public Radio, what's on your mind as we head into Thanksgiving? I actually got married this year, and so I feel like if I don't say I'm thankful for that this year, (laughs) then, um, you know, that's not a good sign. So I think that's definitely been a big thing for me. Congratulations. A belated congratulations. Colin? Uh, I've gotten some uh, good opportunities this year to explore North Carolina with the family in tow. Uh, We've been as far out as uh, Cherokee County, spent a week in the mountains in Andrews this summer. A couple weeks ago, we got to get out to Hatteras Island and spend some time on the Outer Banks. So I feel like I've I've had the opportunity to do the full North Carolina and have my wife and four-year-old to experience it with me this this year. So it's been good. Don, are you going to take the take the bait and see if I'm going to give you a hard time or there's there's something you want? Oh, to I mean, there's lots to be thankful <laughs> for. There is all the time, of course, family and everything. Um, I my parents aren't coming down for Thanksgiving, so I went up to see them for um, a couple of days at the beginning of this week. And it wasn't for a special occasion. It was just spending time with them, helping them out in the Virginia. And I'm just appreciative of them and, and everything they've done for me. And it was good to see them. Thankful for all y'all coming in today, offering context. My quick note uh, is that I've had the opportunity to coach uh, a youth basketball team this year. My son is five and a half. I've never been a Pacers fan. I'm now a Pacers fan. Uh, I did not think I would learn as much from a group of five and six-year-olds as I have but it's been a blast, uh, and we have our next game on Saturday morning, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. Thanks to the whole, uh, the entire panel here on the North Carolina Friday News Roundup here on Due South. Lily Knapp of Blue Ridge Public Radio, Colin Campbell from WUNC, our Capitol Bureau Chief, another Capitol Bureau Chief, Don Vaughn of the News and Observer, and Lucille Sherman of Axios Rally. Thanks, y'all. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Hope y'all have safe travels as you head off to Thanksgiving uh, here in uh, the coming hours or days. This episode of the North Carolina Friday News Roundup was produced by Rachel McCarthy. Our other producers here on Due South are Cole Del Charco and Stacia Brown. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. For the one and only Leonita Inge, my name is Jeff Tabiri. We'll talk to you again on Monday.